This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Caution God at Work is the title today. We're going to read the first four verses of Genesis chapter 11 uh, and get started here. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 says, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower. Uh, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, we continue to thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we have here. Thank you that we can gather together. Lord, there's many around the world, many Christians that cannot gather together, uh, some even for fear of their lives, and we thank you for this honor and this privilege. Now, Lord... uh, Turn our hearts to your word. Uh, Let us hear uh, and understand and grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Caution. God at work. God was at work. God is at work. And God will continue to work. We could just stop right there. That's a message in itself. But caution God at work. Uh, There's a saying, man proposes but God disposes. Man proposes, but God disposes. That's a familiar statement. It's almost a religious cliche. Many people who use it, many of them don't even know what it means. It was written by an Augustinian monk, Thomas Kempis, in the late 1300s, early 1400s. So it's been around for a while. And he wrote that in his classic book on the imitation of Christ. An expanded version of that proverb might go something like, man does what he can, God does what he will. Solomon used more words, and I think they're, oh, I know they're better than what the monk had, but it's Proverbs 19.21 says, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Think about those words. There are many devices in a man's heart. Have you ever thought about, well, you know, this week I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'll go see this person. How many times have people gone to the hospital wanting to be a blessing to someone and come out and they've been blessed by the person in the hospital? Man has his desires in his heart to do something, but God, in the end, works it out uh, to accomplish his will. And when we come to Genesis chapter 11, few chapters in the Bible uh, express that truth better than Genesis chapter 11. When you read this account of the Tower of Babel, and then you read the genealogies that follow, uh, your immediate impression is that God is at work in his world. Not only is he at work in his world, but he's accomplishing his purposes in his world in spite of 
the projects and of sinful people and the plans and purposes, the things that man tries to do, God has a way of overturning things and directing them to accomplish his will. I, I, I have to think about Job and all the stuff Satan, he's got this plan, he's going to work it all out and, and make, uh, make Job uh, turn against God, and it just didn't work. God uh, is in control. God is at work. So number one, God stops a revolt. And the blank there is revolt. That's the word we're looking for, revolt. God stops a revolt. Four great events are recorded in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. The creation of the universe, the fall of man, the flood that we've been looking at, and now today the fourth one, the Tower of Babel. Uh, these are four great events, or four events that are recorded here in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And what they reveal is that where mankind disobeys God, then the Lord judges the sin, and then in his grace he makes a new beginning. And we've looked at some of that already. Uh, we've looked at those three events, and now we'll look at the fourth one uh, today. Man tends to disobey the word of God. God judges the sin, and then God in his infinite mercy and grace uh, makes a new beginning or provides another opportunity or a way of escape. And Pastor Brown brought that home in a message today when he talked about Revelation 14, chapter 6, and the angel flew around and said, listen, you know, you give, and gave them one more chance. can also be illustrated by Adam and Eve. They sinned. But God clothed them and promised a redeemer for mankind. And then Cain killed Abel, but God sent Seth to carry on the godly line. And the Semites mingled with the Cainites, and the Cainites were godless people. God wiped out the entire earth, but through Noah and his family, uh, they Gave, God gave a new beginning to planet Earth. We, had, we called Noah the second Adam. Um, but the new beginning with Noah eventually led to one of the most arrogant revolts recorded in Scripture uh, anywhere. And that's what we're looking at today, this arrogant revolt. So A is, your word there is rebellion. Rebellion. You might find this hard to believe, but Warren Wiersbe is far and away a much better Bible scholar than I am. <laughs> Many people are, seriously. But he has uh, come up with some thoughts that, from his studies, and his conclusions make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, and I, I look, but I can find nothing uh, to contradict his findings. So I hope what I'm about to share with you that he... Uh, deduced from his studies uh, will help clarify the situation and not cause any confusion. So if there's any confusion, it's probably because of the way I worded it or whatever. But in any event, Wiersbe concluded that it's likely that the events of chapter 11 in Genesis happened before the events of chapter 10. And he has a good reason for saying that. Uh, because what he's saying is that the sin of man that we find in chapter 11 caused the people to go out in chapter 10. Uh, 
So the story was probably placed here in Genesis so it could lead uh, into the judgment at, at Babel. Perhaps the story, uh, it, you know, it gives us the genealogy of Shem, which leads into the genealogy of Abraham, the founder of the Hebrew nation. So in Wiersbe's words, the arrangement of chapter 10 before chapter 11 is then literary and not chronological. So if you think about what he's saying, uh, they wanted to have, they had chapter 10, that's the scattering out from Noah when they repopulated the earth. But before they actually went out, they came down, they built the Tower of Babel, God confused the language and sent the people out. So I hope that's not too confusing, uh, but I hope it's, it provides some clarity. God had commanded the peoples, and you remember that we've, we've, we've used this phrase several times, to be fruitful and multiply and to scatter across the earth. But they decided to move to one of Nimrod's city, the city of Babylon, and settle there. The move was blatant rebellion against God's command that the people scatter and populate the earth. The tower that they built at Babel was what was known as a, it's a ziggurat, is what they called it, and I hope I pronounced that right. I did not go to YouTube and look that one up. I was afraid of it. But in any event, archaeologists have excavated several of these large structures, and most, if not all, are actually some sort of religious structure. Uh, the ziggurat was like a giant pyramid, if you will, or a large pyramid, but instead of having smooth sides, it would have steps where you could walk up to the top of the structure. When you got up there, then there would be a shrine to the god or the goddess that you were trying to impress, trying to get their favor, if you will. So the people weren't trying to climb to heaven to dethrone God or anything like that. Uh, rather, they hoped that their efforts, their work, their, the size of their structure, the way they built it or whatever, uh, that the god or goddess that they worshipped would come down and grant favor to them. And that was what these instructions, it, these structures were like. And the more impressive the structure, then they hoped the more likely they would gain favor from their god or goddess. And so that's what we're seeing here uh, in, in Babel. And we're focusing on this one structure called Babel, which means the gate of the gods. And so that's what they were trying to do was build a gate where they could go up to worship and the gods would come down to meet them. And I hope that helps. But the people were resisting God's edict to scatter and repopulate the earth. I don't know, they may have been motivated by fear of the unknown who knows what's over that hill or, or in that valley or, or beyond that mountain. We're not sure about that, but for sure we know they were motivated by pride. They decided to build a city and a great ziggurat and stay together. Uh, but even more, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, and you can see that in verse 4. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and... Let us make us a name. So they were interested in making a name for him, themselves. A lot of times when you're, you're, you're boastful and you're holding up your name, you're trying to attract others to you. Maybe they wanted people to come in uh, and join them. Uh, the people had several things going for them in their favor. They were <clears throat> truly a united nations. They had uh, one people 
speaking one language and using one vocabulary and dictionary, if you will. They were motivated by one spirit to build. They came together. We're going, we are going to do this. They're going to build it. They had a compelling desire, one compelling desire to make a name for themselves. The only thing they were missing, the only thing they're missing is the approval of God. That's not what God wanted them to do. That's not what God told them to do. He said to spread, go out, and populate the earth. So they're missing the approval of God, and they're in rebellion. Be God's response. We find that in verses, verses 5 through 9. Uh, and there's a quote there from historian Charles Beard. He said, Whom the gods, little g, whom the gods would destroy, they first make drunk with power. So can you see these people deciding they're powerful, they're joint, they're one nation, we're banding together, we're a powerful group, we're building this. And uh, so historian Charles Beard saying that they were drunk with power. And if you read your scriptures and, and you know history from Babel to Belshazzar and Daniel 5, from Herod to Hitler, it doesn't matter. God has demonstrated repeatedly it does not pay to rebel against God's will. Even today in our lives, in my life, in your life, it does not pay to rebel against God's will. We saw Noah uh, rebel in his tent in private last week, and, and he paid dearly for that. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And again, in Matthew 23, 12, Jesus warned, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. You know, God sits in heaven. He's never perplexed. He's never paralyzed by uh, what people on earth do. Uh, Babel's conceited, let's go up, is answered by heaven's uh, calm, let's go down. You see that in verse 7, uh, where God says, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Psalm Chapter 2 and verse 4 says this, He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And of course, you know, when the Bible talks about uh, the Lord saying, uh, let's go down, God doesn't have to come down to investigate what's going on. He knows what he's going on. Rather, the emphasis that we have here is what God is saying is, I'm going to intervene. So we're accentuating the fact that God is saying, you know, they're doing this. They're not getting away with it. I'm just fixing to intervene uh, with their plans and their project that they have going on here. And the same thing with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God's judgment at Babel, it not only dealt with the immediate problem of what they were doing, but by confounding the language and scattering the people out, it also prevented them from getting back together and redoing the same instance they have here. Uh, it helped prevent future problems. Same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. But the unity of mankind would only give a false sense of a power that would lead these people 
uh, to rebellion against God. We see God's grace again, if you think about it, on what happens here, what, what they were doing, and how God responded. We see God's grace again, the fact that he confused their language and scattered them over the earth. God graciously spared their lives. He could have destroyed the whole lot of them, but he didn't. He spared their lives and gave them the opportunity to return to him. And that's his goal. God wants people to come to him. He wants them to return to him, even if they stray, even if they stop in Shinar and decide to build this city and this ziggurat. Uh, whatever they're doing, God is gracious, and he wants people to return for, to him. He wants to restore them. He could have destroyed the builders of the city, builders of the tower, but he didn't. Uh, he chose to let them live. In his church today, God is not the author of confusion. We know that, right? God is not the author of confusion. We've said it before over and over again. But in the world, God sometimes used confusion to humble people and keep them from uniting against his will. I don't know how many times I've prayed for those that are abortionist that God would confuse their plans and their plots and their projects and their way of going and I think we all can do that but God can actually confuse people uh, so that they cannot accomplish their rebellious attitude their rebellious will and the way that they're going away from the word of God God does use confusion in that way and the word Shem means name in Hebrew and Abraham a descendant of Shem was promised that God would make his name great. The people of the world depend on their wisdom, their efforts, uh, and yet they fail to achieve lasting fame. Who knows the name of anybody that helped build this uh, Tower of Babel or this city of Babylon? You know, any names that helped build that? No, but everyone. Almost everyone knows the name of Abraham, and he's respected and revered by the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews. God made his name great. And the multitudes know his name. If anyone's going to make my name great, I want it to be God. I don't want it to be Pastor Asher. I don't want it to be Pastor Coles. I don't want it to be anybody. I want it to be God uh, that, that does anything at all with me. Uh, and I don't need a great name, by the way. So, uh, but God makes somebody's name great. It's great. And there's a vast difference. There's a vast difference between mankind's we will make our name great and God's I will make your name great. Rather have God's way. And the book of Genesis emphasizes names uh, in this book as you read through Genesis and God changes several names along the way. He changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Esau becomes Edom, and of course Jacob becomes Israel, and so on. And you'll see that uh, throughout Scripture. The point is what God calls a thing is far more important than what man calls a thing. And we want what God's calling it. And that leads us to letter C, our reply. Our reply, and the word there is reply. 
the story of Babel isn't just part of ancient history because Babel and Babylon present a spiritual challenge to every believer today. Babylon, yes, eventually became a great city and a great empire from 606 to 586 B.C. You know scripture. You know that the Babylonians' armies attacked and captured the kingdom of Judah. They burned the temple and city of Jerusalem. They took thousands of Jews captive to Babylon for 70 years. God used these cruel and idolatrous Babylonians to chasten his own disobedient people. But in scripture, Babylon symbolizes worldly, worldly pride, moral corruption, and defiance against God. And there's a biblical contrast between the earthly city of Babylon and the uh, heavenly city of Jerusalem. The Babylon represents rebels against God, and the heavenly city of Jerusalem represents those that bring glory to God. Babylon represents the world city that opposes God, hates Jesus Christ, and they're out there. They are out there. And it appeals to the baser appetites of human nature. The heavenly Jerusalem is the city of saints. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 puts it this way, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. In the original Babel, the people wanted to build a tower that reached up to heaven. Uh, but in the Babylon that we see in Revelation, it was their sin that reached up to heaven. Not their tower, it was their sin that reached to heaven. Every generation builds its own tower writes psychotherapist Naomi Rosenblatt, and she's right. Every generation builds its own towers, whether it's very wealthy people, mega corporations, very large buildings are built and called by an individual's name or corporation names, and you know some of those towers and buildings and places that are built. And the idea is the same. We will make a name for ourselves, a name that represents pride, power, position and seeks to immortalize uh, the name of whoever built it or whatever. Uh, and as God's people, you know, we hear about the world out there and all the things that's going on, and we really want nothing to do with it, I think, is our initial response. But remember, folks, as God's people, we cannot escape being in the world, and we don't want to escape being in the world. Because it's in the world where we have our ministry. God wants everyone to be reconciled and brought into a relationship with him. And who's going to tell them if we don't? Now that doesn't mean if I want to help an alcoholic get saved that I go sit in a bar and talk to him. But that means I don't stay away from him when I have the opportunity to give him a tract, invite him to church, or witness to him. Yes, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm not going into the bar with him, but yes, I certainly want that alcoholic. I want him sitting here in our church. I want him under the, the, the word of God. I want him to get saved. Uh, 
Uh, and that's where we're at with that. Uh, we must avoid being of the world, but that's, that's where our ministry is, is out there in the world. We're not here to build arrogant towers of men, but we are here to do our part in building up the church of Jesus Christ. And we all have something to do. We all have someone to witness to. You will know and meet people that I'll never know or meet. You have the opportunity to hand them a track, to invite them to church, to tell them about Jesus uh, that I won't have. And I have people that you won't see. I have the honor and the privilege of going into the jail and talking to the men in there to take out literature and put it in their hands. Uh, and you may not have that. Doesn't make me better than you. Doesn't make you better than me. It means we all have our part in building up the church of God. And so we need to be encouraged to do our, pow, do our part. What humanity can't achieve by its proud towers, Jesus Christ achieved by dying on a humiliating cross. And all who trust Jesus Christ are one in him. They're one in him. And one day we, all the saints of God, will share uh, heaven together regardless of race, nation, language, or tribe. In the church age in which we live, the Holy Spirit is using the church as, as an agent of reconciliation to bring things together in Jesus Christ. The day will come when the people of God from every tribe and nation will completely unite, will completely unite in the worship of Jesus Christ, and the judgment seat of Babel will be done away with. And each person in this life must make a choice. Are we going to partner with Babylon and, and be a part of the world and that sort of thing? Or are we going to partner with the heavenly city of Jerusalem, follow Christ, and be obedient to the word of God? That brings us to number two. God sustains a family. God sustains a family. In verses 10 through 26, you know, God promised he would send a redeemer, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, who would defeat Satan and bring salvation. Noah's prophecy revealed that God would bless the world through the line of Shem, the Semites, who were ancestors of the Hebrew people. Genesis 10.21 that we looked at last week says, Unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. Eber, of course, was the line of Abraham. Uh, and that's where he came from. Genesis gives us a couple of genealogies that show how God sustains this family and sustains this line, and, and we get to Abraham. Uh, in Genesis 10, lists all five of Shem's sons and five of his grandsons, but then it focuses on the descendants of Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Eber's two sons, Peleg and Joktan. And Genesis 10 lists Joktan's many sons, but it, ignored, uh, it ignores Peleg's descendants. But in Genesis 11, the genealogy picks up on Peleg's side of the family and takes us through to Abraham. So you can put those together and get from Noah to Abraham. The genealogy that we find in Genesis 5 takes us from Adam to Noah and the one in Genesis 11 takes us from Noah to Abraham. 
And it's interesting, in both, both the, those genealogies, in Genesis 5 and 11, it lists 10 generations. And notice if you, if when you read through Genesis chapter 11, you notice you won't see the phrase that you see in the other genealogies that says, and he died. Genesis 11 is pointing out the fact that man, uh, how old he was, how old he was when the first son was born, and then how old he was when he died. Okay. And if you look at those and you start counting and start adding and start coming up with how old the people were living, Noah lived 950 years. And then Nahor only lived 148. So what we're seeing there, the lesson that we're learning and what we need to understand is that man is now suffering the consequences of sin after the flood. And his lifespan is being shortened a lot from 950 years for Noah down to 148 years uh, for Nahor. The important thing about the genealogy also, another important thing, is that it records the faithfulness of God as he watches over his people from generation to generation to generation. Uh, And he's fulfilling his promises as he goes along. To us, you know, it becomes just a list of names. Uh, some we can't pronounce, uh, and that sort of thing. But to God, it's a bridge. It's a bridge from the appointment of Shem to the call of Abraham. It's a bridge that we can see where God is fulfilling his covenant promises to man. Uh, so that's what those lists are. They, they are important. They're important enough for God to put them in the Bible. Uh, so I, I like to read them sometimes, some of the names I pick up on and say, oh, I remember this guy or that one or whatever. But uh, it's good to read those. It's a, it's a bridge that God built uh, from uh, Noah down to Abraham. And, let, and number three, God starts a nation. God starts a nation. According to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, the glory of God appeared to Abraham and called him to come into the land which I will show thee. I don't know where your, how your Bible was laid out, but mine, uh, I can see Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. And at the end of verse 1 in chapter 12, we see those same words, uh, unto a land that I will show thee. Uh, the Lord called Abraham, and from start to finish, from start to finish, the call of Abraham is a work of God's grace. When God called Abraham and Sarah, they were living in an area that worshipped idols down in the Ur of the Chaldees. In both Ur of the Chaldees and Haran, the people were known for their worship of the moon god. Uh, and that's the areas that they were living in and could have been influenced by that. But living in that area and wor- that worshipped idols... That alone is is a great reason for God uh, to relocate Abram and Sarah and the family and call them out. And Genesis 11, 31, at the uh, end of the chapter, or not near the end there, it says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan 
and they came into Ran and dwelt there. Uh, so I don't know if I gave you the blank for letter A. A man that prayed. A man that prayed. Abram is communicating with God. God told him uh, to go into a land that he would show him. So A is prayed, a man that prayed. I want to get some words that rhyme, so when we get to B, it's a man that stayed. So we have a man that prayed in Abram, a man that stayed, and that's Terah. Terah is the elder member of the family, and as the custom was that day, the patriarch, the elder person, would take charge of the family, and they would head them all up, and he would take them off on their journey. Uh, and they did. They traveled about 500 miles, uh, headed towards Canaan, but they stopped in Haran for some reason. And after some time, Terah eventually died there. Terah died at the age of 205 years old. Uh, that's verse 32, I believe. You know, I've heard people say they give reasons for Herod staying in Haran, and maybe that wasn't good. Maybe he was into worshiping idols. Folks, uh, remember that uh, Nahor died at 148, so uh, Terah is pretty old. He's 205. If I live to be 205, please don't ask me to get on a camel and go across the desert with you, okay? <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> I don't think I would go now. But if we can just have a little, uh, give a little grace there to Tara, and he just may have been old. And old people a lot of times just, you know, I'm here. I, I, I don't want to move. I don't want to go to a nursing home. I don't want to go live with my kids up in Missouri or wherever. You, you know what I'm saying? So it may be that that was what he was because he was 205 years old and, and uh, Nahor died at 148. So he's a man that stayed. So we have a man that prayed, a man that stayed, and now we're going to look at C, a man that strayed. So I got all three, and they rhyme, and everyone's happy. The death of Terah left Abram and Sarah with Lot, the son of Haran who had died back in Ur of the Chaldees. Lot was now under the charge of the man of God. But because of his desire, because of Lot's desire for what he saw and the lure of the world, Lot became a man that strayed. And if you read the accounts, you'll see that God increased the possessions of both Abram and Lot. And both of them grew in what they had and their animals. And back then, a lot of wealth was in the sheep and camels and whatever else they had. And their herdsmen started bickering because they were trying for the same grasslands or whatever. So Abram and Lot came together, and Abraham says, Look, Lot, you go first. You, you pick out where you want to go, and where you go, then I'll go the other way, and we can separate and, and, and cease this division, these problems within the family. I think Lot probably should have had said, No, Father Abraham, because you have done so much for me, I'll let you pick first. But he didn't. He said, Okay, I'll pick first. I see all this pretty grassland out there and those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah over there. So that's where I'm going to go. And Abraham says, okay, go ahead. And as you know, the rest of the story, if you will, uh, Lot strayed. He took his possessions. He separated from Abraham. He chose to go after what looked good on the outside. And we know the saying, grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And it looked green to Lot. And he went there and eventually settled down 
in the wicked city of Sodom. So as God starts the nation, we, we look at the three men there. One prayed, Abram, one that stayed, Terah, and one that strayed was Lot. And then we come to number four. God chooses an unlikely couple. God chooses an unlikely couple. The remarkable thing about God's call of Abraham and Sarah is that they were childless. God's going to start a new nation, and he picks a couple that doesn't have kids. Abram means exalted father, but he wasn't a father. He, he didn't have any kids. They were, these were the least likely candidates of all those people that were out there, of the, of the relatives of Shem, that God would pick to start a family and build a great nation. But God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Uh, and by calling and blessing a barren couple, I don't care what generation you are in, you have to look back at this situation and say, wow, it could only have been done by God. It certainly wasn't man uh, that did this. It was God and give him glory for what he did through this unlikely couple, this barren woman, this childless family. Abram will be called uh, later on Abraham, which means the father of many nations. How unlikely would it be uh, for them to be the father of many nations? Well, number five, God at work. And when God's at work, contrast evidenced. Contrasts. We'll see some contrast. We'll just take a few minutes to look at some of those. There's quite a contrast between the ways of man and the ways of God, and we've alluded that already. But when God called Abraham and Sarah out, that was definitely a contrast to what man would have done. And letter A, the word there is people. We've kind of already alluded to this, but the world depends on large numbers of powerful people to accomplish what it wants done uh, and to achieve the, the goals that they have in mind. But God, he has this magnificent plan for all these nations, and what does he do? He chooses two weak people to start a nation. So there's a difference, there's a contrast uh, when you see God at work uh, in the people that he might choose or not choose. I'll just throw this in. When I went to Bible college, I went to study the Word of God, period. End of story. In my first semester, they said, well, you're going to have to you know, do some of this like public speaking thing. And I said, no, I quit. I did. And I went home, I got on my knees on my couch, and I cried. I said, Lord, I just want to study your Word. I've got this GI Bill, and all I want to do is study your Word. And now they're throwing this at me. And the Lord impressed upon my heart, well, you've registered, go ahead and go. So God's ways are not my ways all the time. God chooses people to do things that you, you may not have an idea that you could do it. But if you, if you will give yourself to the leading of the Lord, he can take you places and, and let you do things that you wouldn't probably choose on your own. So just submit yourself uh, to the Lord and let him do that. A name for B, 
The people at Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. But God was the one that made Abraham's name great. We already alluded to that. Uh, the people in Babel, uh, they figured they had a plan. They could do it. God says, no, I've got a better plan, and I will do it. When I used to deal with the inmates, I'd be talking to them, and they would be all upset about what was going on in their family, whatever. I said, oh, hold it, wait a minute. I said, you make a plan for your child. I'll make a plan for your child. And God has a plan for your child. And then I would ask them, which plan do you think would be best for your child? And, of course, they always said, God's a plan. So uh, God's plan uh, worked out here. The people had a plan. They were going to make themselves a great name. God says, no, I've got a better plan. And God's plan always works out better. And C is trust. The workers of Babel followed the wisdom of the world, but Abram and Sarah trusted the word of God. When God told Abram, get yourself up and get going to where I'll show you, uh, that they trusted the word of God. And I, I love Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. 11 speaks of Sarah, and you know Hebrews 11 is a hall of faith. 11 speaks of Sarah, 12 speaks of Abram. And just listen to these words. Verse 11, through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful. She judged him faithful who had promised. What a statement. Do you trust God to be faithful, to do what he's promised, to take care of you, to never leave you, to forsake you, to meet your needs, to, to be there for you? I, I um, pray you do. And in verse 12, speaking of Abraham, it says, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. And that speaks of people that have faith in God and what he can accomplish through them. You put your trust in the Lord, and he can accomplish great and mighty things. And I don't know how many times in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well, you have to look back and say, only that, that happened only because God was in it. God took care of that. God led me there. God provided. God met my need. Uh, it's God that we need to put our trust just like Abraham and Sarah did. And then D is strength. Babel was built by the energy of the flesh. The people said, we can do this. We can roll up our sleeves. We can get in there. We can bake these bricks and we can burn them thoroughly. We've got this slime here for mortar. And we can get in there and we can build this tower. Uh, but the nation of Israel was built by the power of God in spite of human weaknesses. And how many times when you look through the nation of Israel, you see the humans that have failed, uh, that have fallen, uh, that have fled, or whatever. Uh, but God still is in control, and God has the power, in spite of human weaknesses, to build a great nation and to keep it going on and sustain it. And then letter E is motivation. 
Babel's motivation was pride. It was pride. They, uh, whereas Israel was motivated by being obedient to the word of God and his grace. Pride versus being obedient to the word of God. Folks, listen, if you study the Bible and you look through it, you will not find one instance where God endorses pride. Pride is not ever used in a good sense. Uh, it's, well, I'm supposed to be proud of my uh, family, my country, my church. No, no, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to God uh, that he allowed us to be married all these years. I'm thankful to God for our children. I'm thankful to God that he led us to Good News Baptist Church. I'm thankful to God that he allowed me to be born in this country. We're only, we represent less than 5% of the entire globe. Billions of people out there. I could have been born anywhere where they don't have electricity or medicine or contacts or reading glasses or hearing aids and all those other things that I have. And the crown that I just got, I must be a king. I'm a, I just got a crown. So all these things that, that we, we don't, we're not to have pride in them but we're to be thankful to God for them. And so our motivation should be God, his grace, his mercy, and what he does. We are just, we're just dust. When we get to heaven, we cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. You know why we're going to do that? Because we're going to realize that we didn't do anything without God being there, without him giving us breath, without him keeping our heart beating, without him giving us the thoughts and moving us forward and the strength and the courage and all the other things, we're going to realize we were just dust. But praise the Lord, he uses us to accomplish his will. And that's the reconciliation of the world that we live in. We live in a confused world. Voices are calling us uh, to follow in all kinds of direction. We see it moving into our schools, our universities, as we talked about. Uh, children are being inundated and, and screamed at in all different angles and directions and, and pulling and pushing. Uh, Babel is still with us today. They're still trying to accomplish what they are. But God. But God still has his faithful remnant, and he will have. The remnant that's listening to the word of God and following him by faith, just like Sarah did, just like Abraham did. By faith, we're obedient to the word of God. My friends, yes, God is still at work. He was at work back in Abraham's day. He's at work in our day, and he'll be working at work in future generations. So we don't have to worry that things are just going to fall apart and there'll be nothing there. No, God's at work. He'll keep us going. So are you part of that remnant? And I hope you are. Oh, and I don't want to thank you folks for tuning in. Thank you folks for being here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for recording it, Lord, divinely and for preserving it divinely and, and letting us be born here where we can gather. Lord, what a precious thing it is. What an honor, what a privilege to read and study your word. Lord, help us uh, as we go out into that world to be that light that shines in the darkness, to be that person that someone can look to and say, you know, that's a Christian. I want to be like them. Uh, I want to have a life like them. 
Let us, Lord, uh, be that light. Father, bless us. Keep Pastor Cole safe, bring him back to us. Lord, and uh, be with all the other issues that we had on the prayer list this morning. And thank you for this time together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.